0: Welcome to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here, at the Andrew Lawton Show on True North on this Tuesday, February 6th, 2024, last day on the road, last day in the old uh, Klaus Schwab chair. I was joking yesterday, I should uh, bring one to the home studio now. The home studio is feeling awfully barren now that I've been able to broadcast from uh, this monstrosity of a furniture furniture piece for the last week and a bit. But uh, nevertheless, thank you so much for tolerating the less than usual quality of the program. Hopefully the content rose to the typical standard, but I know I have to deal with a less than superior, I guess that makes it inferior. Uh, don't mind me, my words are gonna be left with the chair by the time I'm done here, but have to deal with not the grade A equipment that I try to use on the show normally. But uh, nevertheless, I wanted to remind you tomorrow we'll be having on the show a sit down with Premier Danielle Smith talking about the big parental rights policy but I have to start off with one of the more unsurprising news stories to come out this week, but still one very worth mentioning. But before we get there, wanna go back a few months. I know the news cycle can be very whiplash inducing. You can forget things once 48 or 72 hours have elapsed and we've moved on to the next outrage. But do you remember this moment in Canadian political history? We have here in the chamber today, Ukrainian Canadians, Ukrainian Canadian world veteran,
1: from the Second World War, who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians, and continues to support the troops today, even at his age of 98. (laughs) He's a Ukrainian hero, a Canadian hero, and we thank him for all his service. Thank you.
0: Uh, that was the House of Commons being led to give a standing ovation for Mr. Yaroslav Hunka who is as if you read between the lines of what speaker Anthony Rhoda said there is a Nazi veteran. He fought with the Galicia division it was a Ukrainian uh, division but it was one that aligned itself with the SS. Now I don't want to rehash all of the discussion we had on this months ago. Uh, this was a profoundly embarrassing moment for Canada. It was profoundly embarrassing for Volodymyr Zelensky, who gave his enemies a propaganda win because he was right up there clapping alongside Chrystia Freeland, Justin Trudeau, Pierre Polyev, Jagmeet Singh, all of the members of parliament. No one was in the clear on this. Now, people should have known better who knew the history. I mean, Christian Freeland, I don't think she had any excuse to not immediately know hang on, if he fought against the Soviets in World War II, that eh, maybe I'm just going to sit down. Speaker Anthony Rota, you can kind of tell, is putting it together as he's introducing the guy. But, oh no, he's a hero. He's a great great hero. We're going to applaud him. Well, this, you may recall, caused days and days of controversy. I actually have access to information requests about this that are still outstanding. Trying to get a little bit more of the information about what went on there. Anthony Rota was the fall guy. Justin Trudeau apologized and completely just threw him under the bus.
1: In a few moments, I will address the House in front of all Canadians, in front of Jewish people here and around the world, and Ukrainians, to offer Parliament's unreserved apologies for what happened on Friday. The Speaker was solely responsible for the invitation and recognition of this man, and has wholly accepted that responsibility and stepped down. This was a mistake that has deeply embarrassed Parliament and Canada. All of us who were in this House on Friday regret deeply having stood and clapped, even though we did so unaware of the context. It was a horrendous violation of the memory of the millions of people who died in the Holocaust, and it was deeply, deeply painful for Jewish people. It also hurt Polish people. Roma people, 2SLGBTQI plus people, disabled people, racialized people and the many millions who were targeted by the Nazi genocide.
0: Yeah, in true Trudopian fashion, this was all a learning opportunity for us. Now, believe it or not, I've never applauded a Nazi in the House of Commons, but somehow this whole ordeal was a learning experience for me. It was a learning experience for you as well. Yeah, you, 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 all of you, you didn't do it, but it was a learning experience and a learning opportunity for you. Well... All of this brings us to where we are right now. Anthony Rota, the Speaker of the House of Commons at the time, resigned. He resigned in disgrace. He went back to being some lowly backbench Liberal Member of Parliament. He was the fall guy for the whole thing. He had said, oh no, I made the decision alone. I did this. This was his apology. I reiterate my profound regret for my error in recognizing an individual in the House during the joint address to Parliament of President Zelensky. I accept full responsibility for my actions. My resignation is effective at the end of the sitting day tomorrow, Wednesday, September 27th, to allow preparations for the election of a new speaker. I won't play the clips, but conservative members of Parliament tried to throw him a bone. They tried to say, "Hang on, I, I think you're covering for Justin Trudeau. I don't actually think you should have be you should be the one taking all the blame here." That was what they said, and uh, basically, the Liberal government's position was that no, 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 it was just the Speaker. Nobody else had anything to do with it. That's it well bring us forward to now this week news comes out that it was the prime minister's office who invited yaroslav hunka to attend a reception for Volodymyr Zelensky in Toronto. So they took Yaroslav Hunka on the road. It wasn't enough for him to just be in the gallery of the House of Commons. They also invited him to a Toronto reception at the rally honoring Volodymyr Zelensky in Toronto. This was an invitation that came from the Prime Minister's office. This is courtesy of our friends over at Rebel News. They got an access to information request back. I guess they worded it better than I may have worded mine if they got it more quickly, or maybe they got a couple days of lead time from me on this. But the thing about this access to information request is that it reveals plain as day that Justin Trudeau sent the invitation through the Office of Protocol. This was an official invitation courtesy of the Prime Minister of Canada. Now, the PMO, of course, has outsourced this to the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. They say, They were the ones who put forward members of the Ukrainian Canadian community that ended up getting invitations. Uh, They said, oh, well, hundreds of Canadians were invited. They've tried to downplay it. Hundreds of Canadians were invited. The individual in question's name was submitted by the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. By the way, he didn't even go. Uh, Knowing what is known now, the individual shouldn't have been invited. But none of this really matters. The Prime Minister's office has had since September when this whole thing blew up to fess up and say, oh yeah, and by the way, we invited him to this thing in Toronto. He didn't go, but, but we invited him. So it isn't just Anthony Roda's job. But if Anthony Roda had to resign and apologize and resign in disgrace for his role in this, why should Justin Trudeau not have to do the same? After all, uh, Anthony Rota was never accused of deliberately inviting a Nazi. It was accidental. It was not doing his due diligence. But it's that same error in judgment that we can now put at Justin Trudeau's feet by the Prime Minister's Office's own information, its own documents, its own data. So here we have proof that once and for all, Justin Trudeau did know about Yaroslav Hunka did extend an invitation and is very lucky that Yaroslav Hunka didn't happen to take him up on it because I'm pretty confident there would have been some grinning picture of the Nazi veteran with Justin Trudeau and Volodymyr Zelensky that would have made absolutely everyone look terrible. Now, I had a view on this matter a few months ago that was not as extreme or or, or radical as some of my colleagues and the media, I said, look, I I think that it's very difficult and I think war is very difficult and I uh, understand Understand how someone in that situation may have decided that the enemy of their enemy was his friend but that's not Canada's problem and it's not Canada's position and Canada should not be in the habit of celebrating Nazis just because we think the enemy of our enemy is our friend sometimes the enemy of your enemy is still a Nazi and it was people that wanted to whitewash that part of history in the name of this Ukrainian nationalist fervor that were the reason so many people were prepared to overlook the very atrocities that uh, many people in this division, I'm not laying that at hunkus feet, but the people in the division in which he fought, were complicit in and there are several people in the canadian government who could have and should have known better uh not at all not all of them have a particularly great knowledge of history but i don't believe for a moment that christia freeland did not know the history instantly when she heard it as that discussion was underway as that introduction from anthony rhoda was underway speaking of Chrystia Freeland I don't want to make this like the Chrystia Freeland power hour here but she does make a cameo in this story because Chrystia Freeland had this tweet which sounds nice it sounds nice this is a liberal government that has decided to take housing seriously and she says homes are for Canadians to live in and should not be used as a financial asset class by foreigners ooh that's some xenophobic rhetoric, isn't it, to Minister Freeland? We are using all possible tools to make housing more affordable across the country, including by extending the ban on foreign ownership of housing in Canada. Now, by the way, bans on foreign home ownership outside of British Columbia, have not actually dented housing prices. Foreign ownership is not as massive an issue as a lot of people like to think it is. It becomes a cudgel because if you are a foreign homeowner, you're not really a voter who can be alienated by someone taking aim at you. But Christian Freeland is saying there, we're gonna go after foreign homeowners. They're the problem. They're the ones using houses as a financial asset class. Now, who on earth would be so dastardly as to own property in other countries? Well, what do we have here? This is called the Disclosure Summary. It's required under the Conflict of Interest Code for Members of the House of Commons. All Members of Parliament have them. You can scroll through and see if your Member of Parliament happens to be a landlord or landlady. Now, uh, some people have one little, uh, you know, flop house rental unit that they make a few bucks a month on. Christopher Freeland and her spouse have multiple. Let's just go down the list here. It's a list. It's not just one sentence. There are a list of options here. Christopher Freeland has joint ownership with another person of a residential property located on Sovivska Sofivska Street in Kiev, Ukraine. Joint ownership with spouse of two rental properties located on Aquinas Street in London, United Kingdom. Joint ownership with two persons of a farmhouse and a parcel of farmland in Peace River, Alberta. She has, under other sources of income, rental income declared for the last 12 months and the next 12 months, three mortgages, a mortgage, four mortgages total, actually. And then she has a spouse who owns a rental property on Irving Place, in new york who is also by the way making rental income so let me just do the math here we've got uh, one rental property uh two three four five i'm doing that math right that is five properties in four countries that Chrystia Freeland and her spouse own. Five properties in four countries. That's a a pretty good haul there. Look, I don't begrudge anyone their success. I don't begrudge anyone the opportunity to own land, but it is a little rich for Christian Freeland, of all people, to turn around and say that foreign property owners are the problem when she is doing enough foreign property ownership for a handful of people in Ukraine, the United Kingdom, the United States, and, of course, in Canada. So uh, funny how the rules are only for... For the little people, the little people who, incidentally, couldn't afford to have property holdings in four different countries. But ah, uh, well, that's what happens when you're on the board of trustees for the World Economic Forum in this world, in this planet, in this country. You get to play by different rules than the ones you prescribe for others. Speaking of the World Economic Forum, by the way, we had so many opportunities there to doorstep, as they called in the United Kingdom, which basically just means you know walking up to someone and asking them questions. But to doorstep various people, we. We haven't even had the opportunity to play all of the footage that we collected there. We've had other stories come up here and there. And and I think this may be the last one. But it's relevant if you've been following in the last few weeks the coverage at True North. I mean, the last few months, really. But uh, there's been a lot in the last few weeks and days in particular of anti-Semitism on campuses. Now... It used to be that maybe you'd see one of these stories and you'd think, oh, wow, that's shocking. Now, absolutely no one is shocked about this. It's not about breaking news anymore to report anti-Semites on university and college campuses. It's really just a matter of uh, documenting because these people should not be able to hide in the shadows of their hatred. Now, there are some schools that have been worse than others, some unions that have been worse than others. CUPE uh, stands out in Canada, which represents a lot of faculty at York University, Carleton University. Uh, they've had their fair share of run-ins with anti-Semitism in the last few months that have been very apparent. Uh, but it's not just a Canadian phenomenon. We saw in the United States Ivy League institutions that were, uh, in many cases, dragged quite deservedly for allowing anti-Semitism to to prosper on campus and in the UK as well. University College London, which is again a very prestigious school, has had rampant, rampant rises in anti-Semitism on campus. So much so that a group of alumni in November wrote a letter about this—a letter about uh, rising anti-Semitism on campus. They ultimately forced the school to issue a response, though many people thought it was too little, too late. Well, didn't I happen to see on the streets of Davos, Dr. Michael Spence, who is the president and provost of University College? london now i thought this would be an easy opportunity a very easy opportunity for him to uh, give a firm and unequivocal condemnation of anti-semitism on campus but my goodness did i have to work for it i wonder if you care to comment on anti-semitism on university campuses i wouldn't but thank you you don't want to comment on anti-semitism on university campuses no the university college london has had many reports of these anti-semitic incidents i would think that someone in your position would care about that don't you
2: Yeah, but I don't necessarily want to talk to um, uh, True North, whomever True North might be
0: about it. So I just don't understand why this isn't an easy condemnation for you as the head of a university as esteemed as yours. So of course condemning anti-Semitism is an
2: easy conversation, and we have the only full-time anti-Semitism education officer in the UK. We have an extensive anti-Semitism education program. Um, we uh, work very closely with community organizations in the Jewish community to fight anti-Semitism on campus. Um, it's a, um, a, a, a real issue across um, not only the United Kingdom, but um, the, the Western world and beyond more generally, and has been for 3,000 years, and one we take incredibly seriously. Um, do but, I don't tend to do, but I don't tend to do doorstops. So thanks very much.
0: As you saw there, he was at first prepared just to blow right by, didn't really want to deign himself to talk to the likes of me, even to do something as simple and important as condemning anti-Semitism. I think there was a moment, if you watch that footage, you can kind of see there's a moment when he sort of has a flip and realizes this is going to look really, really, really bad if i don't come up with something to say when he actually answered i I don't think his answer was all that unreasonable again whether or not it's lip service people can decide for themselves but it was amazing how even that question the instinct is to say i don't want to pay attention to you i don't want to talk about that but he didn't come up with as good a line as our old friend christine lagarde did from the european central bank i know i've played this clip before but it's a fun one Good afternoon ma'am, how can people have confidence in digital currencies and government not using it as a tool of control?
2: I'm not giving an interview, I'm not speaking because I'm in a quiet period.
0: I love it yeah I, I haven't used I said I was going to use that on my wife when she you know wanted me to like unload the dishwasher or whatever and just be like uh I mean I'm, I'm in a quiet period right now I'm in a quiet period uh, uh good old Michael Spence from University College London should have tried the old uh, quiet period <laughs> excuse as well but uh, I don't think he came up with it in time but uh, anyway uh that is uh going on in the UK it's going on in the US it's going on in Canada and it is absolutely egregious and anyone and everyone should take every opportunity to connect. Condemn this and the fact that so many people are pussyfooting around it is quite disgraceful and I think those people need to be called out and, and you can just see by the way the horrendous overreaction to people who dare to say anything even remotely critical Of what some people call Palestine which again is not an autonomous state but that's neither here nor there right now Uh, that British Columbia woman I don't don't know much about BC politics it's not uh, within my wheelhouse generally but uh, this story I have certainly paid attention to Selena Robinson who is a minister in BC's NDP government has resigned from cabinet for saying something which is just fundamentally a piece of historic truth she was referring to the foundation of modern Israel goes back to 1948 when the british mandate for palestine which was again a british territory uh, was turned into the state of israel And what happened there was you had a a piece of land which was very undesirable. It wasn't the Israel that it is today with advanced technology and architecture and infrastructure and all of that. It it just wasn't at all. And she made this comment and she used colorful language. She said, Israel was founded on, quote, a crappy piece of land, unquote. She went on to say that there were several hundred thousand people, but other than that, it didn't produce an economy. Everything she said was correct. But then this was deemed Islamophobic. She has to go through anti-Islamophobia training for stating a piece of historic truth. And while she's an NDPer, I probably don't agree with her on a lot of things. The fact that she is now out of cabinet for this, for telling the truth about history, is exactly why we have to take these issues so very seriously because there is a very i mean people love to say oh the jewish lobby is so powerful i mean it's very anti-semitic when people bring that up nine times out of ten maybe there's one in ten that wants to make a point that's not anti-semitic when they use that language but i think most people try to hide or cloak this language so that their internal biases and prejudices are not as clear but in this particular case you can have your political career vaporized If you go and say something, which isn't even a a Zionist comment, you say something that's just a matter of historic truth, but it gets spun by activists as being Islamophobic and boom, Selena Robinson out of cabinet. Political career over for the time being. Uh, We will turn away from the real hot button stuff right now and go to energy policy. We've been doing a series on this show for the last uh, week and a bit called Unjust Transition. The name is a not so subtle take on the so-called just transition from the federal government this is the uh liberal government's way of saying that oil and gas are the way of the past we've got to get all of those people that work in the oil and gas sector out making you know electric car batteries or, or something like that but it's predicated on a premise that right now does not have any support which is that there can be let alone whether there should be that there even can be this magical transition away from traditional energy sources so we've been telling the positives of the oil and gas sector in Canada with a token mining guy Uh, we've been talking about the positives of the energy sector because we know these stories are not heard anywhere else and I just want to again restate my thanks to the modern miracle network for connecting me with all these folks who I think are, are often a little shy about engaging with the media because they know how the media treats oil and gas companies but they were very gracious to sit down with me and today I want to go to my interview with David Hood who is the head of geologic systems I sat down with him in Calgary so here's our interview for today's unjust transition. I'm sitting down with David Hood of Geologic here in Calgary. David, good to talk to you. Thanks for joining me today.
2: Thanks for inviting me. Andrew.
0: So we've been asking everyone that we've been speaking to in this, how does your company fit into the landscape? Because you're actually part of a very unique aspect of the sector that I don't think a lot of Canadians outside of the energy industry really know exists.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a perception that I think in a lot of people who, are, who don't know about the industry, that it's a very low-tech old-fashioned type industry. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is very, very leading edge. It's very challenging. It's applying the the latest technology in mm-hmm. multiple ways and we're just one example of that. So what we do, we grew from a data company because the, the industry consumes voracious amounts of data. Everything it does is driven by data that was originally subsurface and provided the information and the tools to interpret the data and apply it right across the whole cycle of the industry. Right from <clears throat> exploring for oil and gas to uh, should I buy or should I sell a company. We're, we are just a, a product that is used, or products, right right through the industry from beginning in the, in the morning to the end. Uh, and we grew from there where we were into the, we now have an operation in London, we have an operation in Houston, we've got a, a data operation in India and a software operation in Pakistan. And this is a Calgary company that was going up against a major, major international organization that had 85% of the market and we had a tiny sliver of books left. Now we've got by far the majority of the market and they have what's left. We basically just took that business away from them based on better data, better quality, better services, and frankly, an Alberta approach to doing things.
0: So uh, that story there is, I, I think, a tremendous Canadian success story, not just an Alberta story, not just a, an oil and gas story. It's a Canadian business that's doing such incredible things globally. And I think it's a testament to what happens if the industry can be left to its own devices. And you, you bring this into an environmental context, and, and a, you have a government and a, an environment of NGOs, uh, ENGOs that believe the industry is the problem and and that's not consistent with you know the facts on the ground as as you see them i know
2: absolutely not that's right the there is no chance of getting to a net zero environment without the technology and the expertise from the oil and gas industry geothermal relies completely on expertise from the oil and gas industry uh, carbon capture and storage the same thing Uh, and also lithium and helium, hydrogen, that technology is coming out of the oil gas industry. And so it's absolutely critical. And we all want to cut emissions, but I distinguish between the people who are serious about it and the people who are playing games. So the distinction I would make is this, if you're saying that we are facing an existential crisis, then you treat it as such and you do every single thing you can to get to solving the problem, which we need to do. If you are saying that we only want to do, take this solution or that solution or the other solution, but we don't want to use these solutions because we don't like them, then you're telling me it's not an ex- existential crisis. So what is it? And I think a lot of the NGOs are taking the second approach. Like, For example, nuclear is going to be a, a huge part of the solution. But some people say, well, we can't have nuclear. Mm-hmm. Well, do you really want to cut emissions? So it's a- Well,
0: and carbon so capture, right. very similar. Com- things. Oh, no, That's we right. don't want that suggestion. Right. We don't want that solution.
2: <clears throat> right. And if you talk to the folks at Pathways Alliance, they are hugely focused on doing that. There's a. Uh, White Cap Resources has got a major project in, uh, in Saskatchewan where they are capturing enormous amounts of carbon all the time. That project has actually been using our data and our systems right, from way back before even White Gap bought it in. And there's tremendous progress there. But you have to you have to have the oil industry's farm the solution.
0: So what is it that is missing from this? Because I, I don't think anyone can really deny that, that a lot of this is very ideological. They aren't interested in solutions. The stated objectives are often not the, the genuine objectives here. What is it that they're not seeing? Is it that they're not recognizing what the industry has done, or or that just doesn't factor into the calculation?
2: I think a large part of it is, you know, I'm an engineer. A lot of the people in the industry are engineers, scientists, and they look at it from a factual scientific (laughs) approach.
0: As they should, I would say. It's a scientific issue. Absolutely, absolutely. It's not a political, I mean, it becomes a political issue, but the problem is one that at its core is about science.
2: If you don't focus on science in the industry, you don't get very far. (laughs) But I think a lot of the people are, who are pontificating about this stuff have no scientific or engineering background, hmm. and they're listening to stuff. In, in, you know, let me give you an example. When I was a kid, I grew up around there were shipyards everywhere back in Scotland where I was uh, born. Uh, there was a time when thirty percent of all merchant tonnage afloat f- worldwide was built on the Clyde. Hmm you understood heavy engineering, you saw it all over the place. Today, I think a lot of people never see it and they have a sense that whether it comes from when we're talking about electricity or whether we're talking about energy generally or whether we're talking about food. You know, food comes from the supermarket, energy comes from the wall socket, and they have no sense of the heavy engineering that is required somewhere, like somewhere has to build, somebody has to build a power plant to make that happen. Somebody has to build a windmill to make that happen. It doesn't just happen. And I think part of it is there's that disconnect between an engineering understanding that used to be there and the idea that it all gets done on your full.
0: Yeah, and I think that part is, is so key. And I mean, even when you have people arguing that we need to transition away from oil and gas and use you know, use all of these other means of of powering things, they don't understand what goes into creating that. I think you're right, electricity does not start in a battery. Electricity has to be generated somewhere and put into that battery. And that even right there is the fundamental disconnect that I don't think a lot of people think of when they believe that, you know, this is the future. That's
2: right. And I used to actually work in uh, an electricity supply business when I was back in the UK. And the complexities of what's involved in there Are mind-blowing, and you cannot just the the difficulty in having a stable and reliable power source is it's something that you take for granted because in the Western world people have been doing it very effectively for a very long time. It is very easy to screw up if and if you have a lot of intermittent power sources. Windmills are great, you know. uh, The uh, sunshine is great. But this doesn't work all the time. And you have to, if you're going to rely on those kind of sources, you're going to have to take them from places where, for example, there's a lot of wind or there's a lot of sun, and you're going to have to get it reliably to places that need it with power. So you're going to need to build a lot of grid. There, I, have no, I have yet to see anybody present a plan that says how that grid gets built. Even something as simple as power as generators, excuse me, not generators, transformers, which is needed to step power, you need to step power up the voltage to transmit it long distances, otherwise you lose too much, Mm -hmm. and you have to bring it back down to bring it into houses, otherwise you kill people, which is usually not seen as a good thing to do. And so you have to have a lot of transformers the more you have with a grid. We don't have the transformers. there is a major, major shortage of transformers globally. And partly because there is material that is needed in there, a lot of it comes from China, and you just can't produce enough. And so, you know, I have test-driven electric cars. I love them, they're great, (laughs) a lot of fun. But if you are looking at transferring the entire load across by electrifying everything and then putting in intermittent power sources, you have to have a plan to get from here to there. I have yet to see one, to see one.
0: We, we were speaking earlier about geologic and this, what I characterize as a Canadian success story. And I, I go back to your experience here. You came to Calgary. You could have gone anywhere in the world. You could have stayed in Scotland. You, you chose uh, you know, some years ago to come here. If you were to roll your age back to how old you were then, but you're making that decision in 2023, Do you view Canada as the future where you can build up a career in the energy sector and help build up a very prosperous and successful company in that sector?
2: I can't think of a better place than Calgary to do exactly the same thing again.
0: Even in 2023, with all of the regulatory hurdles and uncertainty, you'd still have that optimism?
2: There is no doubt that Canada has got a lot of things that they have to rethink. I think in Alberta, I have never seen in the... 41 years i've been here i've never seen it oppor- as many opportunities as there are right now both because the industry is going to be critical going forward it is driving emissions down the, the key thing is you need to get rid of emissions you don't need to get rid of fossil fuels in addition you add up the capability that is here in this province for things like carbon capture and storage and hydrogen and helium and lithium that I was told by one of our customers that we have got the biggest potential lithium reserves in the world. I thought it was chilly, but mm-hmm. apparently it's here. Uh, we have got enormous capabilities for carbon capture and storage. Uh, some of them biggest in the world, but partly because of our uh, geology and partly because of the technology. And and hydrogen, has another a huge opportunity. There was a conference in Edmonton about three or four months ago, 8,000 people attended from 30 countries to come to Edmonton to talk about this kind of stuff. So you layer on all these opportunities and it is there's enormous capabilities out there, particularly, and and this is key, it's a major technology frontier. Mm -hmm. What we do all the time is we're doing advanced technology. I, I keep saying to people, you know what our people do is they create value in a thin air. Hmm. If you're a programmer or a data person, you have got nothing except what's up here. You go well, let, let's let's build this, and you create value for people from there. And uh, artificial intelligence, another area hmm. we're working with. Uh, a number of uh, companies to, to develop.
0: Yeah, you're a knowledge company in a resource right. sector here, which That's is right. particularly impressive. And yeah. so
2: the capabilities that come from there are going to be my boy, more things that we can do. So I, I'm very, uh, very optimistic.
0: Well, some of your colleagues, you need to give them a pep talk. You've been the most optimistic of them. So <laughs> I, I'm glad we get to, to end on that. note. David Hood of Geologic, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Edward. Thank you
0: that was david hood listen i followed oil and gas uh, issues for quite a while i don't consider myself an expert but i've developed a knowledge but i was learning lots in every one of these interviews so i hope you have been as well we've got a few more to go until we wrap up the series probably sometime at the end of this week so more of those to come but in the meantime my thanks to all of you for tuning into the show Uh, check back in tomorrow for my chat with danielle smith i hope everything goes off without a hitch because i've been like shamelessly promoting it for the last three shows so uh fingers crossed that'll all work out but one way or another i will see you tomorrow here on canada's most irreverent talk show back in the home studio thank you god bless and good day to you all thanks for listening to the andrew lawton show support the program by donating to true north at www.tnc.news